Hello and welcome back once again to the Expanding Eyes podcast and in particular to our ongoing discussion at the moment of Homer's Odyssey. I find myself looking forward during the week to recording these podcasts because simply I enjoy talking about these works so much, and that's particularly true of the Odyssey. We have been in the midst of exploring the more or less self-contained section of the Odyssey, books 9 through 12 out of 24, taking us to the halfway point of the epic, in which, as scholars sometimes put it, Odysseus, in the festivity of the Phaeacians, pauses to act as his own bard and tell the story retroactively of all the adventures that he has had in the last nearly 10 years since the fall of Troy and he set out to try to get home. And we have reached about halfway through those episodes, which if you number them, it depends on what you choose to count as a separate episode, but uh, according to the famous mythologist Joseph Campbell, there are either 12 or 13 possibly symbolic numbers, at least 12 and 13 in the history of mythology, have had a particular symbolic significance in many places, and we'll talk about that once we get through the whole set. But we have reached the halfway point of those episodes, however we choose to number them. And halfway is the descent to the underworld in book 11, the descent into Hades. Let me briefly recap the episodes that have come before that. In book nine, some episodes are more minor than others, but they often will, even if quick and minor, fulfill or help to elaborate upon a kind of network of thematic patterns that really do, in my opinion, not just Campbell's, draw these episodes together under the surface rather than have them be just a kind of random set of adventures of the hero. One of them is resistance to temptation, failure to resist, often being exemplified by Odysseus's crew, and the first of the wanderings, the episode of the Kikones, that is, that is set up right in the very beginning. In the land later known as Thrace, the men get into pillaging and plundering in their one last raiding party so enthusiastically that they fail to resist the temptation even though Odysseus is trying to order them to leave, and sure enough, reinforcements come up and kill a bunch of them. Then they go on to the episode of the Lotus Eaters, and the men fail to resist the temptation to eat the lotus, which is a kind of narcotic, and simply want to lie on the ground and keep eating the lotuses and enjoying themselves passively, and Odysseus has to make them board the ship by force. 
Finally, in book nine, one of the most famous episodes, that of the Cyclops, the giant one-eyed creature that Odysseus has to outwit with his polytropos nature because he is too big to fight in terms of sheer strength. Moving onward into book 10, we have the episode of Aeolus, the god of the winds. Odysseus and his crew land on the island of Aeolus. They are given hospitality in that leitmotif of the epic, hospitality, the treatment of guests, and are sent away. But Odysseus falls asleep and his men, three guesses, fail to resist the temptation to see what is in the bags that Aeolus has sent Odysseus off, to, off with as a gift. And in their greed, despite having been ordered, above all, do not do that, do not open the bags. They open the bags, and what gift do you get from the god of the winds but wind? Very useful if you're sailing, except when you open them at the wrong time. The winds blow the ship all the way off course again. If you're a sharp-eyed reader, how close did they get? They got within sight of the shoreline of Ithaca, and the idiots open the bags, and they are blown completely off course again. One more failed resistance to temptation. The next episode, number five, nobody quite knows what to make of. The Lestragonians seem to most commentators simply to be a sort of weak repetition of everything that we got in the Cyclops episode. They are, again, cannibalistic giants, and nobody knows what to make of them, including me. Are they there just to swell out the symbolic number of episodes? Who knows, but there they are. And finally, in book 10, the exact reverse, one of the most important episodes of The Wanderings. Some of these have become really simply part of world culture, of household words, the episode of Circe. The enchantress or magician lives on a magical island which also, like Calypso's island, has a name. It is Aia. My standard joke in class was the land where vowel, where consonants have never been invented. A-I-A-I-A, the name of her island. And the men, yet again, fail to resist temptation. They go off on their own. Odysseus is back at the ship and they meet this woman in the middle of the wilderness in her house, and she says, hey, come on in, have a drink. And the drink is a magical liquor that turns them all into pigs, and they become a member of Circe's herd. There is one sailor who had a little bit of common sense enough to be cautious and hang back and resist and not drink the magical drink. His name is Eurylochos. 
he runs back to Odysseus and says, okay, I've got some bad news. Your men are all oinking and wallowing in Circe's backyard. They've been turned into pigs. And Odysseus says, okay, here we go again, and goes off to rescue them. However, he gets some help. The god Hermes descends and gives him two things. One, a magical plant named Moli or Molu, probably in the original Greek, that protects him against Circe's magic. And two, some advice for taming Circe and turning him turning her from an enemy into an ally, not to mention a lover, because the advice is this, okay, the magical Molu will protect you, and when Circe approaches you, you must do as follows. One, draw your sword on her, your male-shaped symbolic object of power, Two, threaten her, and when you do that, and yes, this is sexist as hell, but there you have it. When you show her who's boss, in the good old sexist way, then she'll turn friendly, and then you must, Hermes says, you must sleep with her. This is, as he puts it, an offer you cannot refuse. And three, before you do that, however, make her promise when you are naked and vulnerable, can we say male anxiety? Make her promise not no tricks, you know, while my guard is down here. And you might expect that in a feminist age, scholars rightly are rather horrified at what really amounts to a type of rape. But there you have it. All we can say is, okay, bad as that is, it's part of a more complex picture. And at the end, we have to evaluate and balance the good against the bad. There are not just attractive, but almost idealized portraits of women, up to and including Arete, who is the opposite of this type of sexism altogether. What is the upshot of this very disparate treatment of the feminine? We will try to talk about that by the time we get there later. But at any rate, Odysseus follows instructions to the letter, and sure enough, she becomes friendly and turns the men back into men again and there is a remarkable episode when she does so. It describes their turning back into men, going back from four feet onto two feet again, and weeping so plaintively that even Circe is moved by the painfulness of it. Weeping over what you just got saved from a lifetime of being a pig why aren't you insanely grateful for this? And the text does not say. But what the only thing that I can see that we can infer is they liked it as pigs. They preferred it. Why? 
In English, we have an old phrase, it's a dog's life. They had it easy as pigs. What do pigs do? They sit around and wallow and enjoy sensually without a care in the world. Now we're turned back into men again, and these folks are not quite so heroic as their leader. They do not say, as Odysseus said to Calypso, let the trials come. They would have preferred, apparently, to wallow. It's easier to be an animal. It's harder to be a human being. But on we go, and where we go, this is where Circe turns into an ally. She gives advice that is necessary advice for Odysseus getting back home. It isn't exactly just directional advice. She's not just a kind of a travel agent. She has to give advice in order, now that Odysseus is laboring under the Cyclops curse, he has to not only get out of that curse, but again, getting out of the curse will enable him to get back home. So she tells him, okay, you're going to have to do this the hard way. You're going to have to go back home via a trip to the underworld, to the land of the dead. Dark advice, literally and figuratively. Why that? Because you have to consult the shade or ghost of the prophet Tiresias in order to get advice to undo the curse. So that's the real reason. This is not just a directional thing. This is advice as to how to go onward in a different way from here. Geographically, however, they do set sail towards the direction of the underworld which is north and west in the Odyssey. They have been going west already simply by real-life geography, and we have spoken of this before. Troy, in real life, Troy was located in old name Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. To get to Ithaca, which lies off the west coast of the Greek mainland, you would have to sail southwest to get around mainland Greece. So they've been doing that. But now they continue to go west, but also go north. Hades, the underworld, is in the north. That is a bit of mythological symbolism that is true in a good number of mythologies. North is a symbolic direction and an ominous one in a number of mythologies. And this recurs down the history of Western literature, even in places where you might not expect to find it. When Milton's rebel angels in Paradise Lost gather in heaven to plot rebellion against God, they gather in the north. And Milton knew exactly what he was doing when he situated them there. So we sail in the north, towards the north, and go to the underworld 
to consult the ghost of Tiresias. The night before they leave, however, they have a kind of farewell party, and one of Odysseus's men, named Elpenor, gets drunk, goes to sleep on the roof, falls off in the middle of the night because he's drunk, breaks his neck, and dies. And I always at this point tell a, in class, tell a silly Dalzani story about where this episode came up when I read it for the first time as a freshman in college in Baldwin-Wallace University where I had a whole class as a freshman in Homer. We studied the Iliad and the Odyssey for an entire course under a brilliant faculty member of the English department of that time named Ruby Redinger. And I shouldn't make too much fun of the foolishness of Odysseus' crew because I had my own tendencies at age 18 to screw up. And I did. I was lucky enough to get into the class with this brilliant faculty member. And what do I do? But I get the wrong time for the final exam and miss the final. So the kindly professor, Dr. Redinger, grants me, okay, you can make up the final by taking an oral exam with me one-on-one, -on -one, but please will you come to my house, which was only a couple of blocks off campus, so I could easily walk to it. And if I needed to be punished for my foolishness, this was punishment. At that age, the intimidating idea of talking one-on-one -on -one with this brilliant faculty member and then actually doing it at her home. Yeah, but I had to do it, and I did it, and she was very kind. But the point of it is that at one point, she talked about humor in the Odyssey. And I remember 50 years later, her using the Alpinor episode as an example of this. Odysseus, Alpinor was apparently not, you know, crewman of the month or something because Odysseus had not even noticed that he was missing. They sailed to the underworld and Odysseus follows the instructions of Circe. This is very dangerous to go to the land of the dead. You have to dig a trench in the ground kill some animals, pour the fresh blood in the trench, stay on your side of that line so that the dead cannot get to you and allow them to drink that blood because it's very convenient that we've had a recent craze for zombie movies because it gives you the idea of what the shades of the dead are normally like in Greek mythology, including here. They just sort of shamble around, not really all that conscious, and they have to drink the fresh blood, the substance of life, to be restored to enough sentience that they can talk. And so here's Odysseus in this dark, moment, literally and figuratively, as I say, and the first person he sees on the other side of the line is Elpenor, and he looks at him and says, 
what are you doing here? And you're on the wrong side of the line. <laughs> and it's, okay, you know, what is the moral of this story? Well, it's that theme of temptation, certainly, in this darkly edgy humor sort of way. If you're gonna binge drink, don't sleep on the roof, dummy. You know, Odysseus is this brilliant tactician, this intelligent, tricky character, but I often think in terms of when it came to recruiting, he really should have probably just left it to an employment agency because his men were just losers. And they finally are wiped out to the last man. They like get a collective Darwin Award and are lost, every single one of them. Partly that is the curse of the Cyclops, but the men cooperate very readily with that curse. And through various pieces of stupidity, like Elpinor's, wipe themselves out one by one. So here's Elpinor. However, there is also the shade of Tiresias, and Odysseus there in the underworld does consult him. If that name seems familiar to you, it may be that you're remembering another famous work of Greek literature from a few centuries later, and that is Oedipus the King, one of the probably two most famous dramas in the Western world, along with Hamlet. In Oedipus the King, Oedipus has to consult with Tiresias, who is not dead yet, he's still alive, but he is the blind seer. He is able to have what we sometimes call second sight. He, does, he is blind physically, but has second sight. And there's a background story. It is not particularly relevant to the story right here of the Odyssey, although maybe that's too quick a jump. But I'll tell you the story and let you decide, because it does have to do with this issue of men and women and gender relations. The background story, which you can find elsewhere in Greek mythology, is kind of a dirty joke sort of story about Zeus and Hera, the king and queen of the gods, who were talking one day about who has more enjoyment in sex, the man or the woman. I'm not making this up. Hera says the woman does, uh, Hera says uh, the man does, Zeus says the woman does, and they bet on it. Well, how are you going to prove this? So they, as usual, the gods seize on poor mortals who have no choice in the matter. They seize Tiresias and turn him into a woman for seven years and say, say to, they say to him, go experiment. He comes back, they turn him back into a man, and uh, Zeus has opted for the woman getting more pleasure, Hera for the man, I think I might have misspoken a moment ago, and they ask him, and Tiresias replies, oh, no doubt about it, the woman, of course. Hera is furious and strikes him blind, Zeus is a happy winner, and gives him the gift of prophecy or second sight. And again, you know, where do you stop tracing themes? It is the theme 
of the battle of the sexes, so to speak. But at any rate, here he is now in the land of death, and he does tell Odysseus what he must do, which we'll talk about in book 24 at the very end of the Odyssey. When you get back home, you, go have, to, you have to go and perform a particular ritual which will undo the animosity and the curse of the Cyclops. Uh, a bit of sacrificing to Poseidon. So it's very useful advice necessary for him to have come down into the underworld to receive. And that's the fulfillment of the practical part of this mission down here. However, much more occurs down there. Odysseus really gets a kind of a guided tour while he's there because this is the land of the dead and he will be one of two people who ever went down into the land of the dead while living and came back to tell the story. The other being the greatest of all Greek heroes by common consent of Greek culture and that is the hero we know through his Latin name, Hercules, but in Greek, it was Heracles, the glory of Hera. That's the meaning of his name. A brutally ironic name because Hera, the queen of the gods, hated him out of jealousy, a story that we won't go into, but at any rate, Hera persecuted Hercules, I'll revert to the Latin, more common name for the rest of the discussion. But he had to perform, as many people know, if you know anything about Greek mythology, you know about the labors of Hercules, traditionally 12, although they varied. One of which was to go down into the underworld and bring back the three-headed dog of the underworld named Cerberus. That will come up here in Book 11 of the Odyssey in just a moment. But here is Odysseus going down into the underworld and coming back and he will have tales to tell. Who is down here? Well, the dead, some famous, some nameless, and some personal. Because one of the people he meets is his own mother, Anticlea. And the terrible thing about this episode is, of course, it would always be a poignant thing to meet your own dead mother. But he has not known she had died. She died while he was gone for that 20 years, and he has not known it until now. So this is a terrible shock to him. And not only that, but how did she die? She died of grief, she tells him, pining away for her son, for him. Talk about guilt trips. And Odysseus, in love and grief, tries three times to embrace her, but his arms close on air. She's a ghost. You can't embrace a ghost. 
it is this powerful emotional image and it clearly haunted the whole epic tradition it blows me away how that reverberating image went down the whole epic line it clearly haunted other artists it shows up in Virgil's Aeneid and then it shows up in Dante's Divine Comedy the embracing the one you love who is lost and who is a ghost but Anticlea is here and so are a whole catalog of other famous women Dante will pick up the way that this is structured you come to the underworld which to him of course would be hell and you meet a whole catalog of famous people who were here and Dante repeats this endlessly in each of the nine circles okay who's in this particular circle and you get a whole catalog of general names and then one or two people will come up specifically and speak individually and to clear his here spoken individually but we get a catalog of other famous women the men and women are sequestered by gender down here and some of them we may not recognize but one I might just point out since Tiresias has just point uh, uh, showed up another one who shows up is the well mother and wife of Oedipus who here is named Epicasta, even though in Sophocles' drama a few months, a few centuries later, it will be Jocasta. But clearly, the same woman from the same story. And we get Homer's brief version several centuries before Sophocles of the Oedipus story of a man who unwittingly married and had children by his own mother unwittingly committed incest this terrible tragedy because of a curse but it's fascinating it's a very brief recap but what's fascinating is that in this version Oedipus does not relinquish his throne and exile himself from the city he keeps the throne the mother and wife does commit suicide but all of the famous episode of the putting out of the eyes and the exiling of himself is not in Homer invented by someone perhaps Sophocles himself so all of the famous women then all of the famous men culminating in individual conversations with what I usually refer to as the A-team Agamemnon the leader of the Greek armies in the Trojan War Achilles the most famous warrior who has his own epic counterpart to that of Odysseus and Ajax each of them come up and speak to Odysseus one by one Agamemnon first and the Agamemnon episode fits into the developing motif of coming to terms with the feminine 
And Agamemnon goes into a tirade against women that we have to take seriously and yet detachedly. Because, okay, what is Agamemnon saying? You can't trust women and you give women any power and they might become treacherous. I warn you, he says. Okay, but we have to remember Agamemnon is speaking out of bitter personal experience and his misogyny is far from being the only way of regarding the feminine in the poem. It is one possible attitude of a whole spectrum of attitudes about women and women in particular with any kind of power. His is on the dark end, of course, of the spectrum. And he's bitter about it, but in just common sense real life terms, you just read people and you realize, okay, this guy's bent out of shape by his own experience. This is the drunk guy at the bar who just can't get off talking about how bad his ex was. And he goes into this whole tirade about women in general, not just about his treacherous wife, but women in general. And he warns Odysseus, let it be a warning even to you. Indulge a woman never and never tell her all you know. Some things a man may tell, some he should cover up and so forth. He does go on to say, well, your wife is maybe an exception. She is really pretty good looking uh, alternative in her behavior. But, he says, on second thought, I will advise, stow it away and ponder it. Land your ship in secret on your island, give no warning. The day of faithful wives is gone forever. Well, we know that Penelope is utterly blameless and utterly faithful, so Agamemnon is totally wrong. But we note, although the text never points to it, that is what Odysseus in fact does in one way. He actually follows that advice in a kind of just-in-case sort of way and lands on the other side of the island and scouts out the palace in disguise in part two. So Agamemnon, then the most famous episode within the famous episode of the underworld, the meeting between the two great heroes, Achilles, hero of the Iliad, now dead, having died young, and Odysseus, alive, speaking across the trench in the land of the dead. And we will take up from there next time and move to the out of the underworld into the second half where we can move much more quickly through the episodes of the wanderings and then try to sum up is there a total pattern or a whole interlocking possible set of total patterns and themes in the wanderings. It's a lot of fun, but beneath that, there are some possibly profound patterns that go all the way down to the mythological level, and we'll talk about that next time.
See you then. Thank you.